0: The following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One.
1: When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like good hair day kind of good. Phone charge to 100% good. Getting dressed can feel just like that when you have a Trunk Club stylist. Because not only do we send you lots of outfits and accessories, we also teach you how to style them. And since we're a Nordstrom company, you know you'll be well taken care of. Look and feel great every single day with Trunk Club. Meet your personal stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com.
2: When I heard when I worked at Merrill Lynch that I was going to have to sleep with Peter or the sales manager in order to get accounts and things like that, it made me so mad, I can't even tell you. Because back in the 60s, remember, I'm in college in 69, nine, seven, you have women's liberation, you have lesbian separatism, you have this whole thing happening back then and in the 70s and in the 80s. So I was, a, a you know, a child of speaking up, but not necessarily for myself, but for a cause. And so I went into the, the I went into his office and I looked at him because I had nothing to lose remember and I looked at him right in the face with my finger pointed at him and I said if you ever approach me in an inappropriate way I will cut your pecker off sir
0: Welcome to the Forbes interview I'm your host Steve Bertoni on this show I'll do in-depth interviews with billionaires entrepreneurs and influencers
3: and taking a moment to thank our sponsors, Veradesk, Rocket Mortgage, and Zip Recruiter. Right now, you can try Zip Recruiter for free at ziprecruiter.com/forbes. You'll hear more about these companies later in the show.
0: Hey, everybody! Welcome to the show. Terrific guest today. We have Susie Orman, who is many things, including a best-selling author, award-winning TV host, and I guess we could call you a financial evangelist. Correct?
2: You can call you can call me anything you want, Steve. Those truly. all
0: work, and now and you're those,
2: get- those, those are fine. You also can call me a Wahoo fishing champion, since you may know that I live in the Bahamas and I won for the island the the Wahoo tournament this year. So that was a big deal.
0: How many pounds?
2: Well, the, I catch them up to sixty five. I'm not quite strong enough to pull them in more than sixty five pounds, but I'm trying.
0: That is quite a resume. And now you're going to be a uh, continue a podcast host, right? You have a new show on Podcast One coming up.
2: I do, and it's called Women and Money because this really has been the year for women, women finding their voice. But what's so sad, in my opinion, is you can have a voice and join the Me Too and Time's Up movement and all of that, but if you don't have a financial voice, if you're not powerful over your own money, in my opinion, you are not powerful at all.
0: You've you've given many people the power, and I want to talk real quick about the power of of women and money, and especially with your career, because you, we just were talking before, you started Merrill Lynch in 1980, back when I imagine um, financial advising and stockbrokers, as I call it then, was the old boys' club of old boys' clubs.
2: <laughs> it most certainly was. It was 1980. I was one of the first, if not the first, woman stockbroker that Merrill Lynch in the Oakland office hired. And Back then, it was very typical that for a woman to get ahead, they had to literally sleep with either the sales manager or the manager. Um, What went on in that office was absolutely a travesty from women strippers coming in to perform for the men's birthdays to all kinds of things. It was quite the boys club.
0: Well, that happens at Forbes all the time here. That's wrong? You can't do that anymore? (laughs) Not anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I'm obviously kidding. So what made you want to get into this business? I mean what you know 1980 your it was not a career path for many people I mean for most people and then you decided you know I'm going to jump into this office be a pioneer what, what take me Not in this e- not
2: exactly that it was 1973 and I had gone to the University of Illinois and here we are and after 4 years there I've decided now let's go out and see what the world looks like and I go out with my friends in a Ford Econoline van, 1970 van, it, this was again 1973, and we head out and we find ourselves living in Berkeley, California on the streets until, wow. in the van, until I land my dream job as a waitress at the Buttercup Bakery. And I was a waitress all the way till 1980 when I was 29 years of age, making $400 a month. And I had this brilliant idea that I could start my own restaurant, but my parents, parents had absolutely mm-hmm. no money to their name, and that was like a dream come true that I could have my own restaurant. What kind of
0: restaurants did you want to start?
2: I wanted to do it pretty much like the Buttercup Bakery where I did breakfast and lunch, and then it closed down for dinner because I was one of the best grill cooks. I am telling you, I was fast. I was great. It was <laughs> – I loved it to flip that egg and not break the yolk. Oh, my God. That was my joy of the day, but that's besides the point. And so – um, to make a very long story short, all the people I had been waiting on for seven years at the Buttercup gathered together, and one day they came up to the um, counter, and a man by the name of Fred Hasbrook presented me all these checks and commitments totaling $50,000. Wow. That's very Berkeley. Uh, that was very Berkeley. Anna. Napkin, they had written the following message This is for people like you to have your dreams come true to be paid back in 10 years at no interest if you can. Had no idea what to do with that kind of money. I said to Fred, Are these checks going to bounce like all of mine do? Remember, I made $400 a month. And so basically, What happened is they told me to take it down to Merrill Lynch and put it in a money market account. I didn't know what Merrill Lynch or a money market account was. They told me. And when I went there, I was assigned to the broker of the day. His name was Randy Koch. And when I was sitting in his office with him, I told him exactly what the money was for and blah, 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 blah. And he said, how would you like to make a quick $100 a month? And I said, sure. And he said, sign here or a week a hundred dollars a week. I said, yeah, that's more than I make as a waitress. Yeah, it's huge. And he said, sign here on the bottom line, just sign these papers. And they were blank papers. Didn't even think about the fact that they were blank. <laughs> and when I left, he filled them out to make me look like I was a very sophisticated investor. And Merrill Lynch then qualified me for trading options. And Randy put all $50,000 into buying calls which is, as you know, one of the more speculative trading strategies that you could possibly do. And within three months, because in 1980 was the oil crisis, and he had them all in oil options.
0: So he was just totally upside down.
2: Totally upside down. And they went belly up within three months. And now I was broke. But within those three months, I learned more about options um, and the market than I think Randy knew in his whole life. I was watching Barron's. I was reading the Wall Street Journal. I had my bedroom pasted with the option pages and the stock pages and outstanding issues. And very quickly, I realized that my money was going to be gone. And so even though they said that I didn't have to pay them back, all the people that gave me the money, they didn't have much money. It was a $2,000 check, a $3,000 check. So I thought I could be a broker. They just make you broker. So I got dressed in my red and white striped sassoon pants tucked into my white cowboy boots with a blue silk shirt. It was the best outfit I had. Do you still have it? I don't. I wish I could fit in it still. I should have (laughs) saved it. Who knew, right? Um, But anyway, I go to interview for a job. They're all freaked out because they don't know what to do with me. Before you know it, I'm in the manager's office. His name was Peter Sansevero. Mm -hmm. and um, he told me very quickly. He said, "Women." He said, "Listen, Susie, I personally believe women belong barefoot and pregnant, but I am going to hire you." That but was that was his
0: months, opening remark.
2: His opening remark huh. to me, All right? But in six months, I will fire you. Now, I didn't care because I didn't want to be a stockbroker. I missed the Buttercup Bakery. I actually loved being a waitress. I wanted to have my own restaurant to continue to be a restaurant. You know, a waitress, and. So I said, well, how much are you going to pay me to make me pregnant? And he said, $1,500 a month. And I knew very quickly that was two years of me being a waitress. Wow. And I said, fine. And I left. He handed me a little um, book called How to Dress for Success. Actually, Lori, his secretary, handed me the book. And so no more, the boots are out. The boots were out. The pants were out. And I left. And it was obviously the reason that he, obvious that he hired me was to fill his women's quota because there were no women. Mm. And so I started, and that's how I started there. And while I was training for my Series 7 exam, I read about the Know Your Customer rule, and I went into his office, and I said, you have a crook that works for you. And he said, this crook makes me a lot of money, Susie Orman, you go sit in your office, you know, your little cubicle, I didn't even have an office, obviously, and don't you say a word. And I went and sat down and I thought, well, he told me he was going to fire me in six months anyway. This is like three months into it. I said, that would be easy if I said nothing, but it wouldn't be right. Because what if it wasn't me? What if it was my mom and dad who had no money or all these other people that Randy had to be doing something with? So the head of operations, the manager there, liked me a lot. And I was talking to him about it, and again, to make a long story short, he gave me the name of an attorney that always sued Merrill Lynch and always won, and he thought that he would take it on contingency, and that's exactly what I did. I went to see him. He took it. We sued Merrill Lynch. And what I didn't know is because I sued Merrill Lynch, they couldn't fire me. Oh, wow. And in two years, when it came to court, I was one of their top producing brokers. Randy had been fired in those two years for breaking the law over and over again. And Peter went on to be regional manager and a new manager came in looked at it and said forget about it gave me $50,000 plus 18% interest which were in which is what interest rates were at the time everybody got paid back and that's how my life began
0: that's a great story and i like that story for two reasons one was you know that first of all that $50,000 loss which would be de- which was devastating turned out to be probably the best investment in education in life you've gotten and also that you thought you'd only had six months to. You get fired anyway. Might as well just, you know, you know, give it your all and you know, take chances. And it really worked out. And I think that's pretty fascinating. Two important lessons out of there.
2: Yeah, and you know, and that made Susie Orman who she is today. Which is why I really am a consumer advocate. It's like don't mess with me. Do not take advantage of these people because you know my target audience are really those people who are struggling. Yeah. If you have a lot of money, oh, you can go to anybody you want and do whatever you want. I personally, you know, whatever. It's not what, what I'm all about right now. If you have credit card debt, you don't know what to do. You really need to just help and things like that. that, uh, that you're mine.
3: You're mine. And we'll be right back after this quick break. Hiring. Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and just praying for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day and ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there they even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match the right candidates are out there ZipRecruiter is how you find them businesses of all sites trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs right now listeners to the Forbes interview podcast can try ZipRecruiter for free that's right free just go to ZipRecruiter.com Forbes that's ZipRecruiter.com Forbes and one more time, ZipRecruiter.com slash Forbes. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And there's Veridesk. Traditional static offices are a thing of the past. Today, companies and employees want an active workspace. Veridesk helps people reimagine their office design. Being more active at work, like standing more and sitting less, can help improve your health by boosting energy and productivity. Veridesk Active Workspace Solutions make it easy to encourage more movement in a day. The new ProDesk 60 Electric Standing Desk is the cornerstone of the active office. It's designed with commercial-grade materials, stable at any height, and fully assembled in under five minutes. Plus, all Veridesk products are made to last. They're also simple to set up and move or reconfigure as businesses change and grow. Check out Veridesk products, including the new ProDesk 60 Electric Risk free for thirty days with free shipping and free returns. Learn more at varidesk. slash forbes. That's v a r i desk. dot com slash forbes.
0: Early on, you mentioned that you know you after two years, you're the top one of the top producers. In the beginning, and you said you're the only woman in the office. Were your clients back then? Did you tend to have? women clients, or did you have men clients? What was kind of your approach to get men to give you your money, give them their money? Because it was such a different role back then. It was such an outlier back then.
2: Yeah. I was honest with them. You know, when I got to be the broker of the day, as all of us did during rotation, people would come in and I would say, listen, I'm absolutely brand new and I don't know what I'm doing. Mm Mm-hmm. So I just need to tell you that. But if you give me an assignment, I'll do all the research and everything you could possibly ever want. And back then, you have to remember, discount brokerage firms hadn't quite started you know, Charles Schwab was buying itself back from Bank of America, all these Mm -hmm. things that were going on or whatever was happening there. All you could do was loaded mutual funds. So if you wanted to invest, you had to invest through a stockbroker. And so most of the people that came to see me would say to me, oh, Susie, I know what I'm doing. I don't need your advice. I just need you to make trades for me. Uh And I'd go, hey, great. And whatever they would do, and if they were working, I would do that. And Little by little, that's how I started. But back then, I built up my book, which, as you know, is what they call it, All yeah. Your Clients, is that Merrill Lynch had, it was either a CMA or a command account. I missed them in Prudential, up where I went to work. But one of those two money market accounts that were paying 18 to 20% interest back then. And they had a contest. Whoever could open up the most accounts like that, would win a trip to Hawaii or wherever it was. And I had no problem cold calling 100 people a day saying, why in the world would you have your money in a savings account making 5.5% when you could have it in this money market account making 18%? And people like that. I called them about making more interest, not about investing in the stock market. And before you knew it, I had hundreds and hundreds of people who had done that. And now they have because the minimum investment was twenty thousand dollars, and I had all these people who had money twenty thousand, fifty thousand, a hundred thousand, and then I had a few clients that had stocks and were doing great. All their stocks were going up, so I would just call all my other clients that just had cash and say, "Would you like to try this?" And that's how it started. That
0: works. And then I was I came across an old uh, probably about ten year old um, story in New York, mag- New York Times magazine with you. And then you know everything was growing great, but it sounds like you had you hit not hit bottom, but you had another crisis as well. Correct?
2: Well, that in crisis, um, that crisis was be what was after I was a stockbroker for mm-hmm. Merrill Lynch. For Merrill Lynch in 1983, I went on and left Merrill Lynch to be a broker for prudential Beige back then, because mm-hmm. they were paying a lot of money for good brokers to come. And, and I couldn't I was like I'm going yep. and so I went and then in 87, I started my own firm. Then what happened in 1987 is I brought over a woman from Prudential mm-hmm. who again very long story, but um somehow was able to rip off all the money that I had taken in and on and on and reported that, she was supposed to do all the paperwork for me to become a registered investment advisor mm-hmm. and all this stuff. And I had signed it. She never mailed it in. I thought everything was fine and it wasn't fine. So when what happened? When you say, rip, when was, you say
0: ripped off, what do you mean? She took the money? She
2: actually took the money Wow. that I had. And so then the authorities came in. This is now back in 1987. Obviously no clients lost any money whatsoever. Yes. My own personal money. But they came in. I ended up suing her. By the time I won there, she claimed bankruptcy. We went to bankruptcy court. She had no money. And But during that time, though, I was not doing any activity with any clients whatsoever. And so what happened was I kept spending money like I was making all the money that I used to be making. Mm. And before you knew it, I had absolutely no money to my name. And I was, in fact, $250,000 in debt. Wow. And I was sitting in a Denny's restaurant in um, Berkeley, California, actually in Embryville, California, where my office was, and realizing that the waitress waiting on me had more money than I did.
0: Back to your old job.
2: Right. I was thinking, I better go back. No, because there was no way that she had that kind of debt. I was looking at my you know, Rolex watch or my Cartier watch, whichever one I had on, my leased BMW and all this stuff. And that's really, Steve, when I realized I needed to come clean with everybody. So I started to tell everybody how much debt I had rather than, pre- you know, pretending mm-hmm. I was this fancy schmancy financial advisor with this beautiful office and everything. I just needed to tell everybody.
0: How did that come up? Like when you're telling people, you just mentioned like I sit down. I and... just
2: was, I have something to tell you. Yeah. I'm totally broke. I have not a penny to my name. In fact, I'm $250,000 in debt because you have to face it to erase it. And miraculously, what was so incredible about that is that this the in this year now, PG&E, which I had done the retirement planning seminars for them, and PG&E mm-hmm. is the utility company for Northern California, called me up and said, Susie, we're about to do another early retirement. You're our girl. Want to do it for us? And I said, you betcha. And before you knew it, I had made all the money back and everything was just back and running exactly like it should have been before this happened. I'm sorry,
0: you mean you went, when you say earlier, you went and got new clients from their, from their employees? Well, what happened
2: is years ago at 1980, when I first started for Merrill Lynch, Pacific Gas and Electric called Merrill Lynch and said, do you have anybody who can give retirement seminars? And nobody wanted to do it because nobody ever retired from PG&E. I said, i do it. Yeah. And I went the first year and gave one. And they loved me. Then they, I went, gave four for different things. Before you knew it, I was traveling all over Northern California giving retirement seminars. And then finally they did an early retirement and that's, and that was like in 87, I did my first PG&E and all the people came to me at my own firm. I see. And then they did another early retirement just a few years later and they came back to me and I got to see thousands and thousands of clients at that time.
0: And when you're doing these seminars, was your, you, were, you I think you said you had to face to erase it. Did you, were you giving, were you telling your own story and your own mistakes? Was that part of your shtick back then?
2: No, my shtick back then really was 10-year forward averaging how to avoid paying taxes on this money, Mm -hmm. the best adjoining survivor option. I had written a little book for Pacific Gas and Electric. It was specifically on how to retire um, from PG&E and take early retirement, so those were not the people that I said that I was broke to. It was just, you know, my friends and people like that and just everyday people that I knew, right? But that being broke didn't affect the fact that I was probably one of the more brilliant retirement specialists out there.
0: Huh. And now how'd you go from broker to bro- to global brand?
2: So, and then what happened was that I had been doing this long enough to realize that especially for Pacific Gas and Electric people, that they were getting older, and now we're like in 1994, 95, and I was watching all these people, and they were starting to end up in nursing homes, and all the money they had in their IRA accounts and everything would go to pay for the nursing home. The husband would usually end up in the home. Mm -hmm. He would die. The wife then would maybe get half of his pension only one social security check and she'd have no money left. And I started to specialize in long-term care insurance. So, I had this idea to write a book called Keeping Your Gold in the Golden Years simply to impress my clients, all about long-term care insurance. And I met with a publisher who loved the idea mm-hmm. and she said, but that's not what we're going to call the book. We're going to call it You've Earned It, Don't Lose It. I went, fine, no problem. I wrote the book, and who knew that she was going to send me on a 27-city book tour oh, wow. to promote the book. And before you knew it, that book had sold 800,000 copies.
0: What was, the which book, is- yeah, what was the book tour? What was the audience? Were you going to... Seminars, you go into bookstores? Or so you...
2: I went to all bookstores, and when I would go to a bookstore, there would be absolutely nobody there. Okay. Nobody would show up for any of my book signings. So then I thought, oh, well, nobody's here, but maybe the booksellers, the people who worked in the bookstore, because the bookstore was empty, yeah. right, would want to hear it. So they would sit down, and I would give them a seminar. Then what happened was, and what the book was about. What happened was when people would come in to ask for a financial book, they would all tell them, buy, you've earned it, don't lose it. So before you knew it, I had in 26 cities, all these booksellers in love with me selling my books for me.
0: That's amazing. You you basically recruited your own sales force.
2: But I didn't know that's what I was doing. <laughs> I, I just felt bad for them. And I sent them flowers the next day, all saying, I'm so sorry, nobody showed up. Yeah. And that's how it all started. And then the publisher got me on QVC. And this is now 19, you know, 90, um, 95. I'm now on QVC, and I was the first author to ever break the QVC barrier because the only books that QVC could sell were cookbooks. Because you can demonstrate a cookbook. Huh. You can't demonstrate a regular book. So all these famous authors went on QVC and they failed. And they decided, all right, we'll give her one chance and we'll see. And I went on and we sold out of 4,400 books before you knew it.
0: And you were, giving like a, you were basically giving a seminar on, yeah. on QVC? Yeah,
2: about the book and what the book was about. And I also, in the back of the book, had my phone number and i said on national tv i was crazy back then <laughs> if you have a question just use this number and call me and i'll answer it and right then and there we started to sell 15,000 copies 24,000 copies we sold hundreds of thousands of copies on qvc alone
0: Wow, at least mostly, and these mostly most of the um the clients women
2: yes okay. then on qvc and then what happened was the word got out that somebody broke the qvc barrier and then the next book, Nine Steps to Financial Freedom, came, and PBS and PBS, I approached them mm-hmm. to do a special on that book, a pledge show. They really weren't interested because they had gone with somebody else. I forgot who they were doing at the time. And QVC funded the first um, PBS special for PBS in 1998. And that went on to be their number one pledge show for that year. And every year for the next eight specials I've done, it's been the number one show. And this last PBS show I did for them back in nine in 2014 has been the number one show for 14, 15, 16, 17, going on 18 now, having raised over $50 million alone
0: for them. And is it the same so, to- same topics or just you, you yeah, tweak it? Now, every, yeah, always
2: finance. No, whatever my book was on. So I did a whole new special each time. And so what happened after I made it on QVC, then Oprah got interested and all these things. And before you knew it, I was on the Oprah Winfrey show 29 times.
0: 29 times.
2: I was on Larry King almost 30 times. And it was just and then CNBC, Bill Bolster was the CEO or the president of CNBC at the time. And his wife was saying, why don't you have Susie Orman on and I met with him, and we hit it off fabulously. And before you know knew it, I had the Susie Orman Show.
0: And then I feel like you're always on TV for like 24 hours a day then.
2: Right, right. <laughs> so then it was,
3: you know, and it became their number one show that CNBC produced. And we'll be right back after this quick break. Support for the Forbes interview podcast comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, the mortgage company that decided to ask why. Why can't clients get approved in minutes rather than weeks? Why can't they make adjustments to their rate and term in real time? And why can't there be a client focused technological mortgage revolution? Quicken Loans answered all these questions and more with Rocket Mortgage. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence you need when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. Whether you're looking to buy your first home or your 10th, with Rocket Mortgage, you get a transparent online process. It gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Apply simply, understand fully, mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com Forbes. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org, number 3030.
1: When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like good hair day kind of good. Phone charge to 100% good. Getting dressed can feel just like that when you have a Trunk Club stylist. Because not only do we send you lots of outfits and accessories, we also teach you how to style them. And since we're a Nordstrom company, you know you'll be well taken care of. Look and feel great every single day with Trunk Club. Meet your personal stylist at TrunkClub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. What were you doing to get've I've obviously seen your
0: show many times, but in terms of I've never seen you on Oprah or Larry King, like what was it what were you doing that made them want you to come back you know 30 times?
2: So um on Larry King, he played a game with me called Stump Susie okay callers would call in and and I wouldn't know what the questions were and he loved that I never was stumped. but remember, I started on Larry King when. The, the technology crisis, interest rates back in, were starting to skyrocket at the beginning of 2000. And what should you do? And the markets were going down and NASDAQ was, everything was going crazy up, down. And then, you know, we just went on from there. And, but basically on Larry King, I would answer questions, whatever the topic happened to be that he wanted to talk about. And on Oprah, <clears throat> excuse me, on Oprah, it was people who were in debt, people who had gotten in whatever financial troubles uh-huh. yep. they were in. And it was Susie going to solve it for them.
0: Uh, and going from those segments to suddenly running your own show, what was that like? Because, I mean, you're naturally, obviously, a charismatic person and naturally with showbiz, but suddenly you're responsible for, was it half an hour of TV a day, basically?
2: No, it was every Saturday for one hour.
0: Every Saturday for an hour, okay.
2: And because I've always believed you can't really take me for much more than that. <laughs> and so, um, because I'm intense and this topic is intense and i'm intense because i'm passionate about this and i love this topic more than anything so it was very easy for me to go back and forth between them it was just being me i felt always when i was in front of the camera especially when it was a live camera i felt totally at home so whether it was on larry king live or anderson cooper live or Wolf Blitzer or any of the shows I was on them all the today show you name it I was on all the time um I felt like I was home in front of the camera just talking to people about a topic that they should really hear about
0: Have you always been very um extroverted in, in people's faces even as a as a waitress or even growing up
2: No Actually, I, I, you know, I grew up as a kid thinking because I grew up on the south side of Chicago and I always felt everybody was better than me. I didn't feel like I had a voice. I would do anything for people to love me, including steal money out of my dad's pockets to buy things for other people so they would like me. I always thought I would never amount to anything. I mean, that's how I started as a waitress. I worked my way through the University of Illinois in Champaign working at Bubby's and Zadie's Deli, along with the Red Lion and the Red Herring. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Belushi and Judy Jacqueline were my roommates. Really? Uh-huh, because my roommate was Judy Jacklin. The first year, we lived in a dorm, and I met Judy at the dorm, but we couldn't afford the dorm after that, and they allowed us to move into our own little one-bedroom apartment with another woman by the name of Carol Morgan. Uh-huh. And with Judy came John and um, I always say to people, I always told Judy, don't ever marry him. He'll never amount to anything. So
0: He must have been a great roommate I'm very clean and conscientious and quiet, I'm one, sure.
2: One day we had a date, the three of us, to meet after classes and to all go out. And I'm in the apartment waiting for them. And I actually shared a bedroom with them because then by then we had moved into a two-bedroom apartment. Okay. And Carol and Jana shared one bedroom and I shared it with Judy and John. And I'm waiting and waiting for them, and finally they come walking out of the bedroom. I go, where the hell have you been? And they go, in bed. There was so much junk on the bed, <laughs> I didn't even know that they were in there. So yes, Animal House was a true way that John Belushi was.
0: Wow. So what, what made this switch? How did you? What what clicked to make like you? You said going from low confidence and a people pleaser to someone who's a you know oversized, you know, outspoken, you know, advocate and, you know, national personality?
2: Time and and learning who I am and learning the effect that I had on people without really knowing about it. You know, as I sit here speaking with you, Steve, I'm about to be 67 and I look good, don't I? You're supposed to say yes, Steve, but that's besides the point. But but truthfully... I thought you
0: would say 37. (laughs) All
2: right, now we're not supposed to lie. All right, all right. All right, fine, no problem. (laughs) But um, over time, one can gain their own power and understand it. And the power started when really I was at Merrill Lynch, believe it or not, because it's been no secret that my entire life I've been a lesbian and... Um, when I heard when I worked at Merrill Lynch mm-hmm. that I was going to have to sleep with Peter or the sales manager in order to get accounts and things like that, it made me so mad. I can't even tell you because back in the sixties, remember I'm in college in 69, seven, you have women's liberation, you have lesbian separatism, you have this whole thing happening back then and in the seventies and in the eighties. So I was a, a, you know, a child of speaking up but not necessarily for myself, but for a cause. And so I went into, this, the, I went into his office and I looked at him, because I had nothing to lose, yeah. remember. And I looked at him right in the face with my finger pointed at him. And I said, if you ever approach me in an inappropriate way, I will cut your pecker off, sir. <laughs> and with that, I walked out of the office What was so wonderful about that is you could, because I said it very loudly, and the brokers, the other male brokers heard me say that. And one by one, you could see them call one versus another, like everybody was picking up their phones. But because I did that, the men accepted me for being me and who I was. And I never, ever had to be anything other than who I really was. That's amazing. And that's and that added to my voice
0: because yeah, not only were the only you know woman in the industry, but you were a gay woman, which I can. And that must those guys probably couldn't get wrap their heads around that back. then. What
2: was well, actually, they embraced it. And when they did have the female strippers in, they would say to me, did you like her? What did you think about that? And because I didn't want to shove it down their throats. And I liked that they were embracing me and they were naive enough in a crazy way that they were coming from a place of respect, believe it or not, in a very disrespectful way. Yes. That I would say, not my type. Yeah. <laughs> eh, I don't think so. And they had to change their entire language because of me. Like there would be a sales meeting every four o'clock, I think at Tuesdays, on Tuesdays and It was our first private placement that they were asking us to sell these windmills that were in Livermore, California. And Peter was standing up there and said, men, and I already knew we were in trouble because he forgot that I was there. And he said, men, I am telling you, the first time that you sell a private placement, it will be like the first time you, and with that, he stares at me. And you can imagine what he was about to say.
0: I can only imagine.
2: Yeah, And he looked at me and I said, yes, Peter, is there something you wanna say about women here? And it just silenced him. And little by little, they had to learn the language of respect because I didn't stay quiet. Because remember, again, I thought at that time that I was going to be fired in six months. So when money is not part of the equation, when you don't want that job, when you don't want that part in the movie, when you don't want whatever it is that you're going for and you're insulted by the boss or the man or sexually approached, mm-hmm. you then can have a voice. When money is part of the equation, it's very difficult to speak up and say what the things I said.
0: It's funny. It's like kind of like a reverse ambition in a way.
2: Yeah. Or, it's, it was,
0: you're yeah. just be, or you're playing loose. You're playing. You're playing fast and loose and being yourself. That's that's pretty fascinating.
2: Yeah, because I had nothing to lose, and in fact, I would have loved to have gone back to be a waitress. Because those were the people that, for seven years, I had. They were my friends, and. That's where I belonged in my head. I didn't belong at Merrill Lynch when the brokers went out to eat fancy meals at 1 o'clock because the, mo- the um, markets closed at 1 o'clock on the West Coast. I would go to Taco Bell and sit in my 1967 <laughs> Volvo station wagon and eat while they were driving Jaguars and Mercedes. Wow. Well, so it was it was a big shift for me.
0: Well, Susan, now you have, you have a little more money in your pocket these days. Have you ever opened that restaurant?
2: No, but I've thought about it. I've thought about funding other people's restaurants. And then I decided, oh, please, Susie, you're doing fine. Don't risk your money at this point in the time.
0: Well, you've been very generous with your time. Just before you leave, I love, you know, I got to talk to you some finance advice and tips. Go for it. Yep, go for it. Ask away. Right around. Like, give me one of the smartest things people can do with their money right now. And what's the dumbest thing you can do with your money?
2: Smartest and dumbest together is that do not stop investing in these markets at this point in time. If you have 20, 30, 40 years or longer until you need your money, the dumbest thing you can do when the markets are volatile and they start to go down 700 points, 600 points, up 400, and you get all confused and you don't know what to do. So therefore, on an up day, you come out of the markets. That is the dumbest thing you will ever do. Huh. The smartest thing you could ever do is to continue to stay in the market, dollar cost average, where you put a same amount of money every single month into good quality stocks, mutual funds or exchange traded funds, and hope that these markets go down. Do not hope that these markets go up. When these markets go up, Steve, and you're looking at your statements, and you have 20, 30, 40 years till you need this money, you're having a false sense of worth. When these markets go down, the prices of the shares that you're purchasing go down. So it allows you to buy more shares, the more shares that you have. They're on sale. Do you remember back in 2008 when General Electric went from in the 20s, high 20s, down to six or wherever it went to? Are you kidding me? So that's the time wealth is created. So keep some powder dry, some cash on the sides. And when things go down, buy, keep, do not sell. And over the long run, the more shares you have, the more money you make, You know, if you had sold out in 2009, look what you would have lost out on. If you had just stayed the course and had done nothing, you'd be a very happy camper. So that's the smartest and the dumbest in
0: one. That's perfect. And I have one more very important question. Uh How do you catch the biggest Yahoo fish in the Bahamas?
2: You troll about 17 knots at 350 feet. You use island lures. You invert them so that their spread looks bigger. You have a variety of colors from black and purple, pink and white, to all black, all white, black and orange. You use size 10 hooks. You throw out the lure using 48-ounce 48, um, 48 ounce weights on it, and... You throw it out about 150 feet on one, about 300, 270 feet on another. You troll a straight line at 350, and you get that fish in as fast as you can as soon (laughs) as you catch it. That's exactly how you do it.
0: Susie Orman has a formula for finance and for fishing. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Anytime, Steve. Thank you. You can get financial advice from Susie on her recently launched podcast called Women and Money. There's a fresh episode every Thursday. Find it on iTunes and Podcast One.
0: That's it for this episode of the Forbes interview. I'm Steve Bertone. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with a question or comment, please reach us at interview at podcastone.com. to Podcast One, Office Hours with Spencer Raskoff. Listen to the CEO of the Zillow Group as he talks to his latest guest, Ariana Huffington.
2: The goal of a machine is to minimize downtime, but the goal of a human being is different. For the human operating system, downtime is a feature, it's not a bug.
0: You can find his show and other great business-related shows like Forbes Interview and Forbes Under 30 exclusively on Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and the new Podcast One app.
1: When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like good hair day kind of good. Phone charge to 100% good. Getting dressed can feel just like that when you have a Trunk Club stylist. Because not only do we send you lots of outfits and accessories, we also teach you how to style them. And since we're a Nordstrom company, you know you'll be well taken care of. Look and feel great every single day with Trunk Club. Meet your personal stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com.
0: I'm Ed Donahue.